Let me begin with a sound check. How's the sound? Everybody here okay? And uh, like Carol, my voice has a tendency to drop sometimes too. So one of the folks in the back, just raise your hand up if my voice begins to fade. James, you can hear okay too? Okay. Uh, I'd like to begin with a story, um, story from the time when I worked at San Francisco International Airport, a place where I spent my career. I didn't get many benefits, no flight benefits, but one of the benefits I had is that I could occasionally meet arriving dignitaries on their flights as they were arriving. It never really held much interest to me until one of the police officers told me that His Holiness the Dalai Lama was going to be arriving from Japan. He was originating his flight in India, so a 17, 18 hour day of travel. So I changed my plans to be there on a Saturday morning. And of course, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is treated as a head of state, so he doesn't have to go through customs. simply comes down the stairs, the jetway stairs at the nose of the plane. So that's where I met him. And when I saw him walk down the stairs, the moving in itself, it was so moving to see his kind presence, great equanimity, great happiness, even after that long flight. And when he got to the bottom of the stairs, I bowed. And then he took my hand and shook my hand. And unbeknownst to me, the police officer had a camera. So he then, we then stopped for a photo to be taken. I feel gratitude for that. And while the photo was being taken, I told His Holiness that I was a practitioner. And he nodded. Then he walked to his car. And there was a motorcade of four cars. I had expected that there'd be a lot of other people there to meet him, but it was only police officers, U.S. Secret Service, and his own security staff. So 25 law enforcement types and myself. (laughs) So he walked the distance, 60 feet or so, to the car. And he turned back and looked toward me. And I thought, he can't possibly be looking at me. (laughs) But what does one do when His Holiness the Dalai Lama is looking at you? One bows. (laughs) And then he waved me over. And I walked over and he took my hand again. It was such a simple thing he said. It was so deeply moving to me. He simply said, tell me, I want to know, how long have you been practicing? It really was inspiring to me that after that long flight, he was so present that he was aware of the importance to me of meeting him, that he was aware of the suffering. He was aware of my deep wish for the very end of suffering. Deeply inspired my practice. And unbeknownst to me too, the police officer was taking photos of full length of this encounter. (laughs) Final photo of my standing, watching His Holiness the Dalai Lama's cars, the the small number of cars drive away. And this deepest look of equanimity on my face that I've ever seen in a photo before. (laughs) The great peace, the transmission of that peace. That was a real inspiration for my practice. A reflection of a very deep and wise, deeply wise and compassionate heart that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has. So the theme of my talk tonight is, is compassion. Compassion being the acknowledgement, the recognition of, this, of suffering and the wish for it to end. The acknowledgement of suffering and the wish for it to end. Either our own suffering or the suffering of others. It's often described as a quivering of the heart. Maybe you can connect with that feeling. 
maybe on hearing about the illness of a loved one, or maybe coming upon an accident scene on the road, or just hearing about something in the news, this quivering of the heart, kind of this spontaneous feeling in the heart that recognizes the suffering and wishes it to end. Mingo Rinpoche says that compassion is a spontaneous wisdom of the heart. It's always with us. It always has been and always will be. When it arises in us, we simply learn to see how strong and safe we are. So the spontaneous wisdom, when there's a clarity of wisdom, compassion naturally arises. Compassion and wisdom often described as the wings of awakening, the bird needing two wings to fly. Wisdom and compassion. And he says it's always with us. It's a recognition of this quality of compassion as being an innate quality of the heart. Innate quality of our own hearts, you could say an innate quality of awareness itself. He says, when it arises in us, we've learned to see how strong and safe we are. We become more courageous as we enter into suffering more deeply. As we go more directly into the direct experience, perhaps of our own suffering right here on this retreat. For me too, there's a great inspiration of the Buddha who fully realized the truth of the way things are. And with the Buddha's eye, he could see the compassion, could see the suffering. He could see the suffering of the entire world and see the whole mass of suffering and hold it with compassion. And in in his time, he was known as a happy one. So compassion allows us to go deeply into suffering, but the outcome of that process is one of happiness, one of great peace. So we both cultivate compassion here on the retreat and we open, we allow that spontaneous opening to occur as well. It supports a connectedness, a connectedness to all beings. I'll share more about this. It supports a willingness to be more fully present, to be fully present for our direct moment to moment experience. It supports happiness and ease and supports a greater clarity, insights and wisdom that arise with practice. And Guy's talk on Thursday, he talked about how compassion is deeply supported by loving kindness. Of course, the reminder that this loving kindness begins with ourselves. Words from the Buddha, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. So it begins right here. And then as we're doing and leading the, and teaching the meta practice on Tuesdays and on Friday, on Fridays, it extends outwards, ultimately unconditionally, to all beings and all conditions. I love the words of Deepama on uh, Metta. Guy referred to Deepama, one of the great practitioners of the last century. And she said, I feel thoughts and Metta toward everyone. I don't discriminate. I don't say this is my daughter. I have to give her more attention. My love feels the same towards everyone. Pretty amazing. And a thought occurred to me, I wonder if her daughter feels like she's not getting enough. I doubt that her daughter ever felt that way with an enormous heart and love that was present for Deepama. 
So the practice of loving kindness supports greater ease, greater relaxation, and supports the natural arising of compassion when we're suffering. It supports a gentleness, more gentleness with ourselves in practice and supports that human connection. Compassion is also supported, of course, by mindfulness, simply being aware of the present experience just as it is. I'd like to now talk about my own practice with compassion and my practice over many years as a hospice volunteer. I added it up, I think about 14 years as a hospice volunteer, first in the early 1990s during the AIDS crisis, kind of toward the tail end, when I lost most of my friends, many of my friends. Most of the people I, I lost were during that, was during that time period. And when I was with them, I felt somehow closer to the truth. Even though I didn't have this practice yet, it hadn't found me yet, <laughs> I felt some kind of calling in the presence of the dying maybe in the letting go. As well, I was feeling a need for the heart connection because in my work, I had operations, management responsibilities. Felt like there wasn't the opportunity for heart connection. After I found the practice and after about eight years of practice, I finally recognized the whole of our life is our practice and was finally to actually bring kindness and compassion to the workplace and really deepen my practice that way as well. And the employees I worked with were a lot happier as well. But for me, this practice around death and dying has been like a Dharma gate, kind of a gateway into the truth. The Buddha emphasizes, as Sally said in the teachings on the first foundation of mindfulness, he emphasize several practices around death and dying, including the practice of the five daily reflections, uh, that that I am of the nature to get sick, I am of the nature to age, I am of the nature to die, all that I love and hold dear will pass away, and I am the owner of my own actions. I'll talk mostly about my hospice volunteer work from 2007 to 2016, after I had found, or this practice had found me. I volunteered at a center called the Zen Hospice Guest House. I volunteered for five hours every Sunday morning. Kind of like, felt like I was going to church. And uh, when I walked up the stairs, My intention was never one of, I'm going to be compassionate today. I talked to other volunteers, they never had that attitude either. The intention was for presence, for kindness. Many times I arrived and my mind would be distracted by plans for the rest of the day or the evening or thoughts around work, whatever it might be. And my way of arriving and connecting was to offer metta for myself. I'd begin with a meditation for myself before entering the rooms of the hospice residence. And that allowed that softening and relaxing. My experience was then I could be more open to the suffering that was present, whatever the experience might be. Of course, it wasn't always suffering either. To say, too, that what I felt in the first six months often was that there was a sense of not good enough. Even though I'd done the hospice work for five years in the 90s, coming back into it, there was the arising thought, I'm not good enough. So the kindness is a kind of a form of compassion. To acknowledge that, to allow it, to soften and relax around it. Of course, by the end of my shift, that thought was never there. It was gone. And finally, after many months, that thought stopped arising. When I was with the hospice residents, I'd enter the room and practice 
basically with the instructions for volunteers, which was to sit, to listen, to breathe. Not so different from what we're doing here, is it? Found a tremendous ability to trust the heart. Kind of allowing the words and actions to come from the heart. Maybe you could say from awareness itself. Kind of not through a thinking process. Really surprised me the first few times it happened where all of a sudden I would reach out and touch someone's hand, but there would be no thought that occurred before it. Or say words that just came out. Words of kindness, acknowledgement, whatever they might be. And this tool of presence that I was offering, the primary gift I was offering was presence. It's a great tool that all of us can offer as a result of this practice that we can offer to loved ones or others to simply be present without needing to do or to fix or to make different or to judge. In a way, just holding up a mirror for the other person. Kind of maybe holding up a mirror of mindfulness and of the person holding it who has a heart of kindness and compassion. Often that allowed a deeper acceptance and an opening to love. I really felt like the more appropriate name for this guest house would have been the house of love and acceptance, given what I saw so often there. So a story I'll share um, is of being with a man named Russell. And I'd seen him for the previous four Sundays and just nice guy, but no special connection with him. During the time he was there, he never had a visitor. He was in his mid-80s, but he had a, never had, had a visitor in that time. And the day I came in to see him, he let out a deep breath, and I thought he had died in that moment. He looked like he was very close. And I looked at my watch, and 45 seconds passed, and I thought he had died. And I walked up and I put my right hand on his and said, may you rest in the love and light that is your home. And then a deep breath in. (laughs) Wasn't quite ready to go. (laughs) And I spent the next six hours with him. One of the most intimate experiences of my life. Intimate because of the direct presence. There's no being anywhere else but right there. He had lost, in the hours before I saw him, he lost his eyesight. During the time I was with him, it was clear he was losing sensation over large parts of his body. He couldn't speak. It was clear he could still hear. Not sure what level of cognition was present. But there was awareness, there was a clarity, the purity of awareness. And the Brahma Vihara is these divine abodes, the beautiful qualities of the heart, of loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and the peace of equanimity that, that accepts things just as they are. And they were just arising. And they're such close neighbors, these four beautiful qualities of the heart, that in a moment there might be peace, and in another moment great joy. There are many periods of great joy in that time I spent with him. It became clear, too, that these Brahma-viharas are empty in themselves, because it wasn't Russell's joy or my joy, it was just joy. And all sense of separation dropped away between the two of us. So many of these residents, like Russell, were teachers for me. In many ways, I consider the hospice volunteer work to be just as important as my residential retreat practice. So compassion supported by metta, loving kindness, supported by mindfulness, also supported by equanimity, the acceptance of things as they are, the acceptance of the suffering that's present, our own suffering or the suffering of others. 
and also supported by empathy, kind of the willingness to go into another person's experience. Very different from pity, which is a near enemy. Pity has that kind of yucky feeling of separateness and kind of better than, like it's a, it's a real, it's a bad feeling when one connects with it. Often uh, aversive uh, emotions that are underlying that. Then cruelty and hatred is, are the far enemy, cruelty and hatred. So this quality of compassion that we open to and that we cultivate supports the knowing of the suffering that's occurring right here in our practice. We can become more willing to enter more deeply into that direct experience and maybe begin to more and more often allow compassion to be that spontaneous response of the heart that Minga Rinpoche refers to. You can check sometimes in your practice if there's suffering present. You can check, is there a freeze? Is there a turning away? Is there acceptance? Is there compassion arising? It's a good tool to check and see when you become aware that suffering is present. Compassion also brings more energy to the practice. Beautiful quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, a mind committed to compassion is like an overflowing reservoir, a constant source of energy, determination, and kindness. And then he goes on, this mind can also be likened to a seed. When cultivated, it gives rise to many other qualities, such as forgiveness, tolerance, inner strength, and the confidence to overcome fear and insecurity. So it supports energy, determination, kindness, and with mindfulness becomes a seed for awakening forgiveness, tolerance, and becomes a force for overcoming fear. I remember some years ago being here with uh, Joseph on retreat and uh, I was really stuck around a story, a great contraction, fear around the story, fear around opening to the story, just kind of feeling totally stuck. Wasn't much kindness or compassion present. And Joseph said to me in an interview, he said, you see your own suffering I see it as a universality of suffering, the human condition. It was just like he dropped a seed in. And I returned to my walking and sitting practice. There's no immediate impact of his words. But a few hours later, as I was doing the walking practice, I stopped. I felt like I could recognize my own story of suffering was similar to millions of people throughout the world, very similar. And then that opened the door to seeing that every being has their own stories of suffering, this universal condition. And then there was a softening and opening to and allowing. Then I was able to be with my own direct experience with a sense of kindness and compassion. So sometimes that acknowledgement that it is a universal condition, opening to compassion, acknowledging that this is a human condition. Might also be just that we open to compassion when we're just seeing the habitual patterns of the mind that Carol referred to, the habitual patterns of wanting what is pleasant, wanting what is pleasurable, wanting to get rid of what is unpleasant, what is painful, allowing compassion to support us as we're here with all of the hindrances, which can be, uh, as uh, Joseph said, the vehicle for awakening, the work with the hindrances. I want to repeat the uh, compassion phrases that James offered the other night. I think they're such uh, perfect compassion phrases the uh, modification of the compassion phrases that Dr. Kristen Neff 
as offered. So Joseph, uh, James's variation, I hope I got this right, James. I didn't check the board. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. May I be kind and compassionate to myself. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. May I be kind and compassionate to myself. Sometimes just the words and acknowledgement, I'm suffering, that just opens up the space of compassion, just the acknowledgement. Don't even need to wish it to end, end with words. And it can support us in opening into the more direct experience, perhaps in the direct body, mind experience to name the qualities in the body, the emotions that might be present, the feeling tone that's present. And that's where we find the greater courage than we might have thought possible with this practice. Something I've certainly experienced many times in practice over time, where there starts to be some story come up and coming up on the side. It feels like, no, that's too much. Don't want to go there. And that the simple offering of kindness, the acknowledgement, uh, suffering, just allows the space. Sometimes, too, we need to know when to back off a little bit. Sometimes we need to enter gently into the suffering. We need to back off, maybe returning to the breath and the body or opening the field of awareness to include sounds. All of these experiences around deepening and cultivating compassion then as well support us in not shooting that second arrow that Bhante referred to kind of the first direct experience of pain in the body or mind, the second arrow being the resistance, the contentiousness of the present experience as it is. When we cultivate kindness and compassion, cultivate equanimity with this practice of mindfulness, even though we're going to shoot the second arrow sometimes, many times, we begin to learn to use the tools effectively to avoid shooting that second arrow. So all of this process is part of a purification process. That's the framework that I think is useful to see. There's a purification of our own hearts, of our own lives and stories, and then the purification of understanding, of seeing things as they really are, like breaking through the fog of confusion we may have been living under our whole life to open up to see clearly, aha, this is the truth of the way things really are. I'm aware of my voice fading, so I'll raise my voice. (laughs) Forgiveness is also a powerful tool to support the practice of compassion. So another uh, great story on John Lewis um, was referred to last night, this one of our great American heroes is John Lewis. If I were to pick one living American I'd like to meet, to meet, have a meal with, it would be John Lewis. A civil rights leader since uh, 1960, committed to nonviolence throughout his whole time as an activist. So there's a story of John Lewis that in 1961, he was beaten by Ku Klux Klan members while in a protesting in a whites-only waiting room. And many years later, one of the men who had committed that violence wanted forgiveness, wanted to find the peace was possible through forgiveness. So he visited John Lewis, and the man's son came along with him. He, he said, Mr. Lewis, I'm one of the people who beat you and your seatmate. I'd been a member of the Klan. I want to apologize. Will you accept my apology? Will you forgive me? And tearfully, John Lewis offered that forgiveness. And he said about that experience, it is a power of the way of peace, the way of love, As Dr. Martin Luther King said, hate 
is too heavy a burden to bear. You must never ever hate. The way of love is a better way. The way of peace is a better way. So the forgiveness that allows the healing, it's like putting down the burden and putting down the weight of the burden of carrying the grudge or the burden of not being able to forgive. A near enemy of compassion is righteous anger, fear, or grief. Another near enemy, righteous anger, fear, or grief. From Sharon Salzberg, compassion is quite different, in fact, from anger, fear, and hatred. These states of aversion can drain us and destroy us. This is not to say that it is wrong to feel them, but we must be able to look at our own direct experience truthfully and see the consequences of one set of responses as opposed to another. On my own uh, sangha in San Francisco, a number of people in my sangha who are activists, one person who's been an AIDS activist for 25, 30 years, Uh, many social justice advocates, environmental advocates, a very strong advocate for Medicare and Social Security at the national level. And we talk sometimes about the anger, and we, we recognize that anger can be a power. It can be a powerful, energizing tool that spurs us on to action. So feeling anger, opening to anger, is not a problem, as Sharon Salzberg says. But we all reflect upon ways in my sangha how we can then speak and act from the place of peace and love. Using the anger to fuel us, but not speaking and acting with with hatred. I make a practice around compassion in my own neighborhood in San Francisco, just a tool to note, am I aware? Is the heart open to suffering? And it's so... It's uh, many, many opportunities because there's many homeless in my neighborhood. I live a half half a block away from one of the busiest streets in San Francisco, Market Street. If I walk two blocks in uh, three different directions, any one of three different directions, I'm likely to see six or eight homeless people on the street. More and more people sleeping in doorways at night. It's really tragic. There's one woman I know who's lived on the same one block area for 24 years, for the entire 24 years I've lived in that neighborhood. So I use the practice of mindfulness to note, is there compassion? It's not big and great. Compassion doesn't have to be big and great. It can just be the recognition, just I'm willing to see the suffering that's in front of me. I'm willing to make eye contact with people who are homeless. I'm willing to talk to them if they speak to me. It's a pretty rare thing that I actually give money to the homeless. But I do make this practice of generosity that that Joseph teaches that when there's an impulse to give, act on that impulse. So once in a while I'm surprised surprise myself when I offer money to buy someone a meal. I never know how the money's going to be used, but it's the offering. More often I will offer clothes in the wintertime. I keep my old clothes and uh, have them on the ready. And uh, it's usually such a close walk back to my house. I can ask if someone's cold and needs clothes and, and bring them back. And there is such a joy in the giving. There's a joy in that intention to give, the joy in the action, the joy in the reflection afterwards. And it's not always there. Sometimes, you know, once in a while, I'll catch myself, usually after the fact, where I feel aversion, even anger toward the scene that's in front of me, of people who are homeless and suffering. And usually when I take the time to go back and see what happened, there was something else that my mind was caught up in. Some other story had really nothing to do 
of what was present in front of me. But the story I would be caught up in would block the heart so that compassion wouldn't arise. And compassion too recognizes the limits of what we can do. Just, just like there's, with all that homelessness around where I live, there's not much I can do. But sometimes we, we have the capacity and we can offer. A story from about 20 years ago, I walked out of a coffee shop around the corner from my house and saw a young man, turned out he was 19 years old, who didn't look like he was homeless at all. And it startled me. I felt a quivering of the heart when he asked for money. And I spoke to him and asked him to tell me his story. And he told me he was 19 and that I suggested he go to a homeless shelter that serves homeless youth, one that I, I knew of well, called Larkin Street. And he told me that he was a year too old. And he also didn't feel comfortable being with the older people in adult homeless shelters. And it really touched my heart. Nothing I could do to help him right there. And I saw him over the next few years, over about a five-year period, clearly becoming addicted to drugs, appearing to become mentally ill. Then he disappeared. I don't know what happened. But as it happened about Two weeks after I had that encounter with him, a friend of mine invited me to lunch and said, would you help Larkin Street to raise money for a homeless shelter for older youth? What a coincidence for 19 to 24 old youth. This is something I can do. I have the capacity. I don't think I would have had the capacity to be a counselor or mentor for the youth. It would have been would have felt too much. It was deeply moving. It allowed some deep healing for me to open my heart to compassion for these youth, to recognize that the youth we see on the street are not homeless because they want to be. 80% or almost all of those youth are homeless because of the abuse, physical, mental abuse they face in their homes or because they came out of the foster care system totally unprepared, were handed a $3,000 check when they're 18 and said, told, here, you're on your own, go make it happen. And amazingly, that organization I I supported, 80% of the youth they helped got off the streets for good. So it really changed my attitude around homelessness. And it allowed a healing in myself, the pain I'd carried. I was briefly without, without a home when I was 19 years old, too. That's why that 19-year-old touched me so much. and allowed my own healing to take place so that I could enter into that suffering 25 years later. So sometimes, sometimes we do respond to compassion just because we have the means and the opportunity, you can think of the opportunity to take action that arises. There's a story of a a nun, a Catholic nun from earlier this year, and uh, she was principal of a school, and there'd been a big storm in her area, and there was a tree down in front of the school. And she was photographed in her nun's habit with a chainsaw, cutting a branch on a tree. It got some media attention. And she told the uh, CNN reporter who covered this, I saw, let's see. The road was blocked. We couldn't get through to the school. And I saw someone spin in the mud and almost go into a wall going off the road. And so there was a need. I had the means, so I wanted to help out. She continued, we teach our students to do what you can to help. And so this was an opportunity where I could do something to help. So a beautiful, spontaneous response of the heart. Sometimes action's appropriate, sometimes not. The practice of compassion brings a real malleability 
of the heart is my experience. This malleability of the heart. Compassion recognizes suffering, wishes it to end. Right next door is empathetic joy. It recognizes the happiness of others, wishes it to continue. Kind of a celebration of others' happiness and wishing it to continue. And when one of these beautiful qualities of the heart, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, equanimity, loving kindness are present, when one is strongly present, the others can spontaneously arise as well. That was my experience with Russell in hospice. And it's what I imagine it's like for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And maybe he's in a room full of people. Someone is telling a story of their suffering. His Holiness the Dalai Lama feels great compassion. That story is complete. He turns in his head, sees a laughing child, feels empathetic joy. That immediate responsiveness of the heart. So compassion does support joy, supports happiness, supports ease, supports that right in our practice. Compassion is certainly not grim. And just like my experience in hospice was not a grim experience. Usually when I left my hospice shift, I felt more peaceful at ease. Felt the defilements were often at bay, the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. Not so strongly present. As I was with people who were dying so many times, the three things that stood out, every death, ordinary. There is this, there is dying. This is a human experience. Every being sacred, every life sacred, without exception. Every person I was with, there was a sense of the real perfect beauty of their own heart. Didn't matter whether they'd been addicted to drugs or been criminals, whatever the backgrounds were, it didn't matter. And there was a mysterious beauty in the letting go. Every time, the sense of beauty in the complete letting go. So it certainly allowed a letting go around fear of death, allowed some uprooting of fear. But these three qualities, ordinary, sacred, beautiful, are also qualities that are present in every moment. Every moment, as James said this morning, ordinary, a moment of liberation. No moment more special than another. Every moment. And our lives sacred. The sacred, precious human birth we have, our great fortune in finding the Dharma, to practice the Dharma in this life. Really sacred. And the potential to open to mystery, to the beauty that happens with a deeper letting go, the deeper renunciation that happens when we stay with our practice, when we commit fully to our practice with a heart of courage, kindness, compassion, opening again and again to the present experience just as it is, letting the Dharma carry us, letting the Dharma reveal itself. Tell a couple more very short stories from hospice of seeing the peace, first of seeing the peace that can arise with this letting go. A story of Shane, I just met her one time, but a profoundly moving experience uh, for me. I walked into a room, she was very new to the hospice center. She was only there four days before she died. I asked her permission to take a seat. After a little while, I said, so how is it being here? 
And she looked around the room slowly, very ordinary room, and said, once again, everything is new. Every moment a new beginning, every moment new and fresh. And she looked around the room some more, looked out the window, one window, she could see a little bit of the sky, top of a tree. And she said, everything is beautiful. The days before she died, there seemed to be no holding on whatsoever. And then she said, will you serenade me? (laughs) And I said, you don't want me to sing. (laughs) I can't sing. And she said, yes, you can. So I held her hand and we sat in silence. And that was a serenade. And I left the room maybe after a half hour. And that was the last I saw of Shane. I certainly carry her with me in my heart, that brief interchange. So also a story of uh, Mary and how these, it's a story of how the, these beautiful qualities do arise from the heart, from the heart of awareness. Really not through a thinking process. We can cultivate by bringing attention to compassion, by repeating words of compassion. But ultimately compassion from the heart, from the heart of awareness, so to speak. I'd sat for seven or eight weeks with a woman named Mary, and the nurses said she had no cognitive ability whatsoever. She'd had a stroke, no no feelings, sensations on one side of the body, and never a response to to words spoken, never never an indication of responsiveness. But we all felt some kind of a kind presence very kind presence, felt a heart presence. And again, I would hold her hand and uh, as I did with so many other residents. And we were sitting one afternoon and we heard a crash in another room, a glass break and a cry out for help. And immediately Mary's hand lifted up and waved for me to go and help that person. Where does the compassion come from? Where does love and kindness come from? So the practice of compassion, the opening to compassion, cultivation of compassion, allows us to open more directly to see and know suffering for the direct granular realization of this first noble truth supports the opening to see the ephemeral nature of all experience, the impermanence, perhaps at a microscopic level, and to see the empty nature of all phenomena, to see that the complete interconnectedness and ultimately to see through the illusion of self, leading in the direction of a higher happiness, a happiness that's not dependent on any material condition of the world. So compassion and wisdom, the wings of awakening, have they really come together and support one another? The bird needing both wings to fly. A quote from Joseph Goldstein. One of the great turning points of my practice was realizing that wisdom and compassion were expressions of each other. Compassion is a very activity of emptiness of self. This is compassion not of a stance of the ego or even of a particular practice, but as a spontaneous expression of a heart and mind free of self-reference. And I'll close with a quote from Shantideva in the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And this uh, also shows in uh, Joseph's book on mindfulness, this quote. For all those 
ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I be may I myself become for them the doctor, the nurse, the medicine itself, raining down a flood of food and drink. May I dispel the ills of thirst and famine, and in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all that they might need. My body thus and all my goods besides and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus for everything that lives, as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment, until they pass beyond the bond of suffering. Allah sits. May our practice be for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be free of suffering. May it be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.